The Science Inside Podcast. This is the Science Inside. Good evening and welcome to the Science Inside, bringing you the latest news stories and events happening in the world of science and technology. I am Nondumiso Lehuto and in this week's show we are looking at food waste and nutrition. So from the 9th to the 15th of October it marked National Nutrition Week. And by the way, did you know that 90% of unconsumed waste in South Africa is sent to landfill sites which consume energy that could power the city of Johannesburg for 16 weeks and wasted embedded water which could fill over 600,000 Olympic swimming pools. It's crazy. So that means that in South Africa, 10 million tons of food goes to waste every year. That's a third of the 31 million tons produced annually in South Africa. Of this, fruits, vegetables and cereals account for 70% of the wastage and loss primarily through the food, food supply chain, excuse me, from farm to home. Yet, we still continue to see the lack of accessibility to nutrition, especially among children. There are still a number of poor feeding practices that affect our young population. So with that in mind, our country is characteristic of low birth weights, malnutrition, obesity and disease. These occur in an environment where large food corporations have penetrated the market, offering food of questionable nutrition that is cheaper than healthy alternatives. So the South African government has taken a pledge to reduce food insecurity by 2030 and for this to be successfully achieved, it would be required that each citizen informs individuals, informs themselves as well on food preservation and storage in order to control food waste and improve food security. But we will obviously look at that a bit further later into the show. On Science This Week, we explore how Mona Lisa actually was not genuinely smiling in Leonardo da Vinci's famous painting. Next up, we have the news with Lindo Gutle. This week's Science Headline. In your news making headlines this week, Wits University researcher gets international recognition and removing all stumbling blocks to curing HIV. Good evening, I am Linda Gushetimakwe. An international collaborative study involving University of Cape Town researchers has revealed an unexpected finding that could lead to better therapies towards reducing the HIV reservoir, a, ma- a major barrier to developing a cure for HIV. The reservoir consists of a viral DNA that survives hidden in the body even after indefinite treatment with antiretroviral. Antiretroviral treatment can suppress HIV, but it cannot cure the infection. Widely available antiretroviral treatments stop progression of the disease and in most cases prevent people from developing the immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS. They can reduce a person's viral load to the point where it's undetectable with standard tests. Therapy cannot eradicate the virus, which persists in long-lived reservoirs in the DNA of immune cells, as HIV encodes itself in the DNA of millions of CD4 immune cells, just waiting for the opportunity to replicate should antiretroviral treatment ever stop. The dynamics of how this reservoir forms, though, have been largely unknown. Scientists have thought that it formed continuously during infection prior to treatment. 
Now scientists have genetic evidence that this is not the case and the initiation of antiretroviral treatment could be altering the biology of human immune system in such a way that it allows the HIV reservoir to form or stabilize. The new research results from the collaboration between researchers at UCT, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and the Center for the AIDS Program of Research in South Africa, otherwise known as CAPRISA. Since this silent HIV reservoir can persist for many decades, patients are required to stay on treatment for the rest of their lives. Thus, this reservoir is a fundamental obstacle to a cure, but without an understanding of how it forms, there's little chance of ever eradicating it. Using blood samples collected from nine South African women from the Caprissa 002 cohort in Durban, the research team embarked on a study to understand the timing of the formation of the HIV reservoir. HIV is a virus that evolves very rapidly. It's one of the fastest evolving entities known. Not only does it reproduce quickly in a person, the virus can produce billions of copies a day, but its genetic copying is sloppy, introducing mutations as it goes. However, this characteristic of HIV also offers a tool for researchers to map a timeline of the virus's evolution. If the viral sequences from the reservoir were closely related to that of the viruses in the bloodstream around the time treatment started, it would indicate the reservoir had formed then. Whereas in the reservoir sequences were similar to viruses circulating during early infection and before treatment, it would suggest that it was formed continuously throughout infection. To date, there have only been two cases where people have been cured of HIV, one in Berlin and one in London. These were possibly only because of exceptional circumstances not reproducible for the 38 million people infected with HIV worldwide. The researchers are now exploring the idea that the initiation of antiretroviral treatment dampens the human immune system by by reducing the presence of active HIV. This makes the immune cells where the virus is embedded more likely to turn into long-lived memory cells that may ultimately, at some point, constitute much of the long-term viral reservoir. Up next, a Vitz researcher reservoir, a Vitz researcher and inventor, Michael Lucas, has scooped the prestigious Prix Hubert Tour Innovation Award for his antimicrobial coating technology. The award is one of the top honours handed out at the International Conference on Prevention and Infection Control in Geneva. The technology now in its fifth year of development is a non-solution to address the problem of non-nosocomial infections. Excuse me. These are infections acquired during hospital stays are a significant and persistent issue faced by hospitals across the world. Antimicrobial coatings can be applied to high contact surfaces where there is risk of contamination including medical facilities, food processing, plants and public services. In addition to the opportunity to see the developed coatings firsthand, I've asked you some questions. The first question asked how quickly you think an antimicrobial surface coating will take or should take to eliminate infectious microorganisms. This question highlights a very real concern many of us face when entering a hospital. Will I pick up an infection by touching things? We've all heard of the prevalent hospital-acquired infections and hospital superbugs made worse by resistant and multi-drug resistant strains. In South Africa, for example, it's approximated that one in seven patients entering one of our hospitals are at high risk of picking up one of these infections. 
there is undoubtedly a shift from patients being treated by the hospital staff to being treated for the hospital staff. A nosocomial infection is contracted because of an infection or toxin that exists in a certain location such as a hospital. People now use nosocomial infections interchangeably with the terms healthcare associated, HAI, and hospital-acquired infections. For HAI, the infection must not be present before someone has been under medical care. One of the most common wards where HAIs occur is the intensive care unit, ICU, where doctors treat serious disease. A large percentage of people admitted to a hospital will contract AHII. They are also associated with significant morbidity, mortality and hospital costs. As medical care becomes more complex and antibiotic resistance increases, the cases of HAIs will grow. The good news is that HAIs can be prevented in a lot of healthcare situations. Microbes are able to colonize virtually any surface and can persist for weeks on materials commonly found in hospitals. This leaves high contact surfaces vulnerable to contamination and subsequent microbial transmission. Mobile devices are being used more frequently in these environments, posing a greater threat from the ubiquitous hospital superbug. As an engineer, I addressed this issue as a design problem. I asked myself whether it was possible to design and develop an antimicrobial surface, coating or material to replace existing hospital surfaces. Copper, silver and zinc metals possess innate antimicrobial properties. The term contact killing is often applied to these materials, particularly that of copper. And since plastics are common hospital surfaces and easily contaminated by pathogens within hospitals, the challenge of antimicrobial polymer metallization was undertaken using various additive manufacturing techniques, including cold spray, which is a surface coating technology, and polymer 3D printing. Bacteria, fungus and viruses can cause HAIs. Bacteria alone can cause about 90% of these cases. Many people have compromised immune systems during their hospital stay, so they are like, more likely to contract an infection. Bacteria, fungi and viruses spread mainly through person-to-person -person contact. This includes unclean hands and medical instruments such as catheters, respiratory machines and other hospital tools. HAI cases also increases when there is an excessive and improper use of antibiotics. Antibiotics. This can lead to bacteria that are resistant to multiple antibiotics. So in terms of future recommendations or, or things to look at next, um, is definitely looking at longitudinal studies within a hospital environment. So testing these coatings in a hospital in different, different environments, different scenarios. So that would be, be one of the, the things to take forward. Another thing I'd like to look at possibly is to look at toxicity studies, although it's in a, a surface environment where the, the risk of complications because of having a copper poisoning or whatever is, is reduced, but it would be a way to, to confirm that. And the one test that I'd like to be doing with that is a dermal permutation test using a, an analog, a skin analog. So those are the two main, main next steps. Recapping your stories this hour, Wits University researcher gets international recognition and removing all stumbling blocks curing to curing HIV. This is you're still with us, The Science Inside, and now on to nutrition amongst young children. As I have mentioned, there are still a number of poor feeding practices that affect our young population.
According to statistics, Gauteng, the Free State and KwaZulu-Natal have the highest number of young children who are stunted, while the Northwest and Western Cape have the highest percentage of children who are underweight. It is clear that eating unhealthy food or not having enough food, including children who are unable to breastfeed, contributes to widespread malnutrition. Now, with that being said, we have Chantal Witten on the line, who is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Health Sciences on the campus in Potchefstroom. She initiated the idea of the breastfeeding room in 2016, which was a step towards addressing the university's serious lack of facilities for mothers needing to express their breast milk. On the conversation of nutrition and children, good evening, a very warm welcome to the Science Inside, Chantal. Thank you, Lindo, and thank you for inviting me, and good evening to your listeners. Now, with regards to the breastfeeding room, I have to ask, how has the reception been? Has it been reaching your expectations? Unfortunately, no. I think that just making a room available is just one part of the puzzle. Actually getting women on our campus um, to use the facilities and to demand the facilities has been a little bit more difficult than we had anticipated. I think it's also because women are very busy and the room is not actually located, you know, very conveniently to where mothers are working. And so they have to walk over or drive over to our room. But it was a way to create awareness and start getting the university to engage and to have a policy. And that policy means that wherever a woman is located within her department or within her section, we should be making facilities available to her. It doesn't necessarily mean setting up a room, but it does mean giving women the freedom to have a space that is clean, that is safe, and that allows them to express whenever they need to. Right. And on um, creating this accessibility, how has um, this approach been in terms of creating facilities where women can actually um, express their breast milk? Um, I think the difficulty is, I think you must also remember that we are talking about a university that probably has over 3,000 women working for for the institution. It's about women demanding the service. So when we have our women going on maternity leave, they should already know when they go on maternity leave what will be the arrangements when they return. Because we know that one of the main reasons that women stop breastfeeding prematurely, women should be breastfeeding up to two years. But women often stop breastfeeding just before they come back to work, which is usually around three months. Women stop breastfeeding then because they haven't really engaged with their managers to talk about how will they be supported in the workplace. And for me, this is a sad situation in South Africa because we have laws that protect women when they return from maternity leave to actually have the facility. So from a, a HR perspective, it's a compliance issue on your organization or your institution. And then on the woman's side, it is your right to actually ask for it. You have the right to have that facility made available to you. So one of the things we do need is to get this message out there to mothers and to women. It's not a nice um, or it's not a nice thing to do. It's an obligation that an organization has towards its women. Sure. Wow. Wow. Thank you. That is rather very informative. I did not know about that. So drawing it back to children, what is the truth behind hunger statistics and how is it affecting the growth and development amongst our children? 
I'd like to take the conversation a bit broader than just our children because our right. children are an indication of what the state of health is or human development is in a country. Mm. So stunting is an indicator by the United Nations that shows how well a country is doing. So the higher your stunting rates, the worse the country is doing. For South Africa, which is a middle-income country, we are doing dismally poorly because we have such high rates of stunting. In fact, some of the stunting, I mean, some of the rates that we have in some provinces are even higher than where we have war. So I think it, this is a true reflection of how South Africa, especially poor households, and that 60% of our population is living below the upper poverty line. That mm. means households don't have enough money to buy a good diet. That is supplying everybody in the household. So when we talk about hunger, the indicator for children that are going hungry is because children are so vulnerable. But it mm. reflects the number of households that are going hungry. We have very high levels of unemployment. We have very high levels of poverty. So it's not unexpected that our stunting rates are increasing. And that's the, that's the, the concern that we have as advocates, as activists, as academics and practitioners, is that South Africa's stunting levels are increasing. They've increased since 2008. We were just under 21%. And now at 2016, we are standing at 27%. So this is a real indictment for children that we are not taking our children's needs into consideration. But I think it's a broad issue about hunger in the country. All right. So now speaking of indicators, um, you may correct me, but um, according to my understanding, meta-analysis is used to suggest, you know, the common processes behind food insecurity that take specific forms in particular communities, right? So would you say this um, the specific statistical approach is effective? I think statistics is very, it's very difficult because sometimes we are missing out pockets. So when we talk about aggregated data, which says, you know, as a national figure that we have 27% stunting, it doesn't necessarily highlight the fact that in the Northern Cape, our stunting rates are way above 35%. And that means that we are missing out some areas that are more affected than others because we are talking about averages. So I think when we look at meta-analysis and statistics, we must always remember there are contextual factors and there are certain instances where it will be worse than others. Okay. So now there's a debate over, you know, the causes of inconsistent food security between regions and communities. And it has fueled highly contested viewpoints between, you know, many academic disciplines and in development thinking over the past few decades. What are the risk factors for food insecurity? Well, like I said, Linda, one of the first things is that when you have high poverty, you will have food insecurity Mm, mm. because we are a country that is reliant on buying our food rather than producing our food. So we are not living at subsistence level of farming. So firstly for us, as a South African population, we must always remember economic crises and economic prices of food is our biggest challenge right now. We've seen over a number of years since 2016 up till now, the food basket, the basic commodities that you would need in a food basket is increasing. So what cost 100 rand last year or the year before is costing probably closer to 150, 160 rand. So that means that households, especially poor households, are not able to keep up with the cost of a food basket. So for for one, we need to tackle poverty. Two, Mm -hmm. for households that do have economic um, 
access, they, make, they might not be making the right choices. So we know that our consumers make choices based on affordability, so not knowing the nutrient value of food, but buying food because this is what will last for a month, this is what will give us, uh, you know, make us feel full. So most of our poor households are buying very high starchy foods. We see that rice is as a commodity, rice, bread, um, mealy meal. These are the staples. Very little buying of fruits and vegetables because these are also expensive. Very low buying power for good quality meat, which is why we see our processed meats being consumed at very high levels. Um, which remember we had the listeriosis outbreak mm-hmm. and it affected so many people because people are eating poloni, viennas, processed meats rather than buying high quality meats. Many, many households can't afford to buy fish because it's just too expensive. Quality milk is so expensive. I speak as a middle income household myself. I find it difficult to buy milk, you know, on a weekly basis. So I think when we talk about affordability, it's our biggest challenge. And then once people are buying food, they are buying foods that will last longer rather than on the quality of food. So we have a real problem when it comes to quality of food. Sure, that is very true, Chantal. So what then would you recommend that mothers can do to prepare nutritious food on a very low budget? For our moms, especially I'm talking specifically now for children under five. Mm-hmm. When we have a basic, let's say it's it's lily meal or we have a basic bread, we need to make sure that we are adding some quality to that food. So we are promoting eggs. So if a child can get an egg once a week, we are then having a good intake of micronutrients. These are the things that protect our body from disease and keep us healthy. Fruits and vegetables. Now, it doesn't mean you just have to give fruits and vegetables to your child as a snack. Yes. But if you are serving your child with, uh, you know, a bowl of milly meal in the morning, why not cut a banana into it? Why not mash some avocado into it? Mash some mango into it? For children who are growing, they need high quality micronutrients and that comes basically from our fruits and our vegetables, our high quality meats like liver, egg, fish. So a tin of fish can go a very long way when you are serving it to a child under five. And as I said before, If we can just get the quality of the food up, milk is another one, but I know for many households, milk is very expensive. So we are trying to push more consumption of tin fish, eggs, adding peanut butter, adding fruits and vegetables to meals. Wow, okay. And of course, with the lack of nutrition comes vitamin deficiency. So what are the conditions actually associated with vitamin and mineral deficiency and how do these actually play out later in children's lives as adults? Well, not only as adults, but for Mm -hmm. our young ones, your vitamins and your minerals, if you think about them, you must think of them as an umbrella. They protect the body. So they give us a big, high level of immunity. It keeps our keeps us healthy and when we are diseased, micronutrients help us to fight our disease. So if you have a deficiency, most times you will have very simple indicators, like you're constantly sick, you're constantly getting Mm -hmm. infections, coughs and flus, Um, you get cuts in your tongue on the side of of your mouth. These are all signs that you are micronutrient deficient or vitamin deficient. Many, many children are iron deficient, meaning they don't get enough iron. So they're rather sleepy, they're lethargic, they're not as active, they're crabby, 
So these are all signs that tell us that we are not getting a healthy diet. And the more children are sick in South Africa, we also see that our children are succumbing to diarrhea. So diarrheal rates are very high. So when your immunity is low, you tend to get infections. And one of the things that would really happen is increased diarrhea, increased cold and flus. And like I said, we have these symptoms of um, cuts in the mouth and on the side of the, of the, of the mouth. Sure. Um, before I let you go, Chantal, I need to mm. ask, in your opinion, are the feeding schemes in our schools and at various NGOs effective in bringing down starvation amongst young children? Uh, Linda, this is a very difficult question to answer because it's not a yes or a no. It's not as simple as that. We know that all our feeding schemes are closing a gap on hunger. So for many children, the school feeding program is providing probably one of the only meals they would have in a day, meaning that when they went home, they probably just have a slice of bread and, and a you know cup of black tea. And so they're getting something at the schools and they're getting something at the ECD centers. But when we say we want to reduce um, chronic malnutrition, that means that a child should have access to good food every day, 365 days. And in order for us to be able to deliver that, as a country means that we need to empower households at the local level, both in terms of income, so they're able to buy a good a good diet, and secondly, to make good choices with their food, you know, with their decisions on what foods they're going to buy. We have a big problem that many households are now eating outside of their home, which means that they're buying fast food. And as you know, fast foods are not the healthiest choices. They may make your tummy feel full, but you're not getting as much micronutrients as if you had a pot of food at home, which you have added your own fruits and vegetables to. So that's a problem for us. It's the choices that people are making, but people are making choices because of cost. And I think it will, it will need a concerted effort by government, the NGO sector, for us to be able to come up with good programs that can at least address child malnutrition in South Africa. And we had a recent seminar by Grow Great, and we had very, very good experiences from other countries. Countries like Mexico, Chile, Brazil, India have all made huge progress in, in terms of providing children with good food and reducing their stunting levels. Mm. With regards to these increased costs, right, mothers are compromising their own nutrition for their children. So now there's this correlation between food insecurity, mental, physical, and basically the health that has restrictions that are placed on the dietary intake. Well, how would you say mothers, or in fact women's health, is infected? Look, we know that our women are also, when we talk about malnutrition in the context of South Africa, we are also talking about obesity levels. Mm. Because we know that when you are stunted as a child, your risk to become overweight and obese are increased when you are an adult. And right now, South Africa's adult population, starting from 15 years towards 59 years, 70% of our women are overweight or obese. That's a huge burden of malnutrition already for women. And when you are overweight or obese, your risk of infections are also increased. Your risk for diabetes, hypertension, cancer is also increased. So when we see our women in the context of South Africa, they are overweight and obese because they are unhealthy, because they are not making good nutritional dietary choices. And we know that is not because women don't want to eat well or they are overeating. It's because, they're, again, they're compromising on for providing for the family 
And most women are not just providing for their children. They are sacrificing their own diet to provide for the whole family in a household. And so that means that they are doubling up on the fatty foods because they're maybe eating pup and just gravy and no meat, no vegetables. So they double up on, on the amount of millimeal they would be eating. And that is obviously playing out now with the obesity rates that we see in women. And further along the line, our women are also uh, succumbing to issues like diabetes, like hypertension, and mm-hmm. these are increasing year on year, and more women are affected than men. So definitely women are compromising on their own nutrition to support the household. Sure. Thank you so much, Chantal, for your time and enlightening us about the way we should actually be preparing and consuming our food, you know, especially because it can be so detrimental um, on children and on us as well. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for the time. Now, remember, you can find us on Facebook as VowFM, hashtag Science Inside, or you can also tweet us as at, at VowFM. Remember to use the hashtag. Next up, we have Unscience. You definitely have to stay tuned. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Now it is time to look at the strangest side of research and get a little silly with the research that scientists make time for. Today's Unscience was produced by myself, Nondumi Solehuto. Now, Linda, you know about the famous Mona Lisa painting, right? <laughs> How can I not? When it has been everywhere, Mr. Bean movies included. Yo, I wish I could also pose and just have my smile distributed like that everywhere. You know <laughs> what I mean? Funny that you mentioned her smile as there is so much speculation around it. It has been found that she actually was not genuinely smiling. Wait, so you're telling me that all my life I've seen Mona Lisa's smile when in actual fact she wasn't? How can that be, Nondu? I know, I mean, Mona Lisa's smile has intrigued humanity since famed Leonardo da Vinci painted the portrait in the early 16th century. Mm. But a research team and neurologist from Ohio now says that her smile was non-genuine because, it, because of its asymmetry, as in it was too perfect. So this research team, what did they find? So the results indicate that happiness is expressed only on the left side. Now, according to some influential theories of immersion neuropsychology, they interpreted the Mona Lisa asymmetric smile as a non-genuine smile. Okay, but like, how did they know it was not a genuine smile though? They asked 42 people to judge which of six basic emotions were expressed by two chimeric images, which is a mirror image of the left and and right sides of Mona Lisa's smile. But in this case, they judged just one side of the smile. And 39 people indicated that the left half of the smile displayed happiness, while none indicated that the right side showed happiness. Crazy. Mm-hmm. In assessing the right side smile, the right side of the smile, excuse me, 35 said that said the expression was neutral, rather. Five said it was disgust and two indicated sadness. Okay, now that you've mentioned it, when I do think about it, there is no upper face muscle activation in Mona Lisa's painting. Right. A genuine smile, when I read sometime back, or actually when I read sometime back, is called a Dachshund smile. So it causes the cheeks to rise and muscles around the eyes to contract. That's why the 
asymmetric smile, also known as a non-Dutchian smile, reflects a non-genuine emotion, which is what happens when, I guess, the subject is not genuinely smiling right. Exactly. Mm. Also, can you imagine sitting in one spot for hours just smiling? Oh, no. I mean, my cheeks get sore <laughs> after smiling just for a few minutes. So, considering that it is unlikely that a person who sits motionless for hours to be painted is able to smile genuinely for that long. The most simple explanation is that the Mona Lisa's asymmetrical smile is the manifestation of an untrue enjoyment in spite of all the efforts that Leonardo used to make in order to make his models merry. I guess also an you know, alternative intriguing possibility however is that Leonardo also already knew about the true meaning of the asymmetrical smile more than the centuries like you know three centuries before reports such as this one and deliberately illustrated a smile expressing a non-felt emotion yes but also Leonardo was a master of sfumato So this is the technique of shading which is used to demonstrate a certain expression. Okay. So he deliberately raised her left lip as if to paint a smirk. Surely he would have known that curving the lip on both sides and adding folds around the eyes would have shown a genuine smile. So that's one of the reasons why authors speculate that Mona Lisa's smile might hide cryptic messages. Exactly. So for example that this was in reality a self-portrait or that the portrait itself referred to a man or a dead woman. But what we still don't know is the reason behind why exactly portrayed her this way. Her smile is as elusive and also as ever had been, like we kind of know the knowledge behind it about genuine smiles, you know, hundreds of years before the Dutchens work in the 1800s. So, I mean, we have to play or kind of enjoy thinking that this asymmetry was a deliberate action. Yes, and I know we're becoming very analytical when it comes to this painting, but I mean, Mona Lisa's smile continues to attract the attention of its people. The true message it conveys remains debatable and many unsolved mysteries remain to be inexplainable. Perhaps via the knowledge of emotion neuropsychology. So Linda, I'll be checking if you'll be smiling (laughs) genuinely from now onwards. Don't worry. My smile is always genuine. Mm, I'll just look at the right side of your mouth and see the truth. But it's crazy. Mm. We always used to wonder why the Mona Lisa painting was so famous. But maybe it's that fact. Nundu, that kind of reminds me of Margaret Livingstone, a neurobiologist at Harvard Medical School who studies the human visual system. She said over the years that she noticed a change in Mona Lisa's expression. Mm. So she found that in this painting, Da Vinci actually achieved and intended unusual effect. The Mona Lisa smile also changes depending on where you look. Oh yes, I remember Hmm. this. Her research is based on the differences in the spatial frequency perception within the eye, right? Hmm. Spatial frequency being a measure of how detailed an image is. I mean, a good example would be your computer, your phone. Mm. Images on a computer or your phone screen are made up of pixels. And you know how artists always make a career out of manipulating our perception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, that, like, that's true. So Livingstone's research shows that the actual secret behind the Mona Lisa smile, basically, is that the happy part of her smile is actually buried in a low spatial frequency pattern. So if you're not looking directly at her mouth, her smile looks cheerful. But when you look directly at her smile, parts of it disappear into the background. So you're never quite sure if she's smiling or not. Wow, so you're telling me that after today, I can actually decide whether Mona Lisa was smiling or not. Exactly that. Yeah, it is unusual, unlikely, and unscience. 
Definitely stay tuned in. Next up in our second story, we find out more about eco-friendly food practices, as well as on the strong social power of food and cooking through an event known as Disco Soup. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. Now we go into a story our producer Bridget Lipero worked on. She went into the field and attended this event which advocated for the acknowledgement about food wastage. Disco soup means a protest soup against food. So this movement was created in Paris in 2012 and works to raise public awareness of the problem around food waste. Disco soups are collective and open cooking sessions of scraped or unsold fruit and vegetables in a musical and festive atmosphere. So this event not only aims to address the issue of food waste, but also brings together people in a very social type of environment. Take a listen for more. In South Africa, 10 million tons of food goes to waste each year. The Council for Scientific and Industrial Research has valued this loss at over 61 billion. However, the French Institute of South Africa and the Alliance Francais have become agents of social change in South Africa where they held a disco soup, also known as the Schnippel Disco, a protest soup against food waste. The event promotes for healthy cooking and the sensitization of food waste realities. Disco Soup also allows for eco-friendly food practices and the strengthening of social cohesion to promote cleaner ecosystems, fuller bellies and emptier bins. I'm the director of Alliance Francaise in Johannesburg and in Soweto. And actually, incidentally, I'm also a coordinator of the Alliance Francaise in Southern Africa. So that's six countries and 22 different chapters. The Alliance Francaise in Soweto actually uh, opened in 1984 and uh, it started as a cultural center but also as a training center. At the time, youth people would come here to learn how to cook, how to uh, lay bricks, how to build, etc. And then the center went down, actually was closed for a few years. And ever since I've been here, like two years ago, we uh, decided to reactivate it. And it's been a big success. So uh, like the event we are organizing today, it's called uh, Disco Soup. We wanted to bring it here because it's a popular event. So the idea is to have people from the community, from the neighborhood coming to help us cook. So uh, it's not just preparing a meal, but it's also a question of making people aware on food wastage. All the food which is being cooked today is food which was thrown away or which, which was going to be thrown away by shops, by uh, supermarkets. And the idea is to bring it, use it and then cook it to show people you know, this food which is thrown away is still usable, even though it's got maybe a piece of different color, different shape, etc. Or even this, you know, the freshness state was yesterday or two days ago. It's still usable and you can make good meal out of it. So the idea is that we have all those people coming, also obviously kids and children because we want them to be fully aware of uh, food white stage. So we're all cooking together. We are all going to have the meal we've, uh, we've prepared together. It's called Disco Soup because it's also on disco music. So we've invited a DJ, Jean-Michel, and uh, he's been playing uh, music all morning. So you see, it's a very um, friendly event, but with a, with a real cause uh, in the back. Because, I mean, it's just not tolerable to live in a world where there's so much food wastage and then where so many people on the other side are starving. So we have to do something. We have to um, create awareness. And, uh, and through this type of event, 
uh, I think we can we can reach it. The event was a first of its kind in Soweto to see the collection of food collected by a non-profit company called Nosh Food Rescue which has provided over 38,000 meals to soup kitchens and feeding schemes over the past three years. So this event actually, I think it started a few years ago in the 90s in Germany. I would say among Europeans, um, also with the Northern European countries, the first ones to really, really become aware of, uh, you know, environment, uh, questions of sustainability and uh, of, uh, you know, um, limiting wastes, etc. So the concept was born in, uh, in Germany and then after it spread literally everywhere in uh, in Europe. Soon it also became obviously a festive event with music and so that's why they call it uh, Disco Soup. Here in Johannesburg we brought it last year for the first edition in uh, in our Lyon Francaise in Zoo Lake and for this year we decided to bring it to Soweto as well. I'm really happy with the success of this event. We're going to bring it again next year but we wanted to maybe we'll find a different touch, a different way of, uh, of approaching the event but it's uh, I'm really happy. I'm glad that it's we can organize it in Soweto. The movement was initiated in France in 2012 and has been raising public awareness about food waste since then. According to Statistics South Africa, in 2017, almost 7 million South Africans experienced hunger. And while the number has dropped from just over 13 million in 2002, it still affects 1,7 million households across the country. Food waste not only affects millions of people in the world, but 90% of waste in South Africa, which is disposed in landfills, leads to the production of methane gas and carbon dioxide, thus releasing greenhouse gas emissions that the world is struggling with bringing down and as a result are the main climate change exacerbators. The figures are so scary. When you put on one side the tons of food, millions of tons of food which are which are rejected, wasted, and on the other side millions of people, billions of people not eating on a daily basis. It's just unbelievable. This gap is widening day by day and I think it's it's not just a question of, you know, it's, it's everybody's question. As humans we have to really get uh, aware of it. It might be a little bit more outrageous in Africa because obviously it's a continent where this problem is still starving people is still a, a real problem, you know. So you would you would think that here behaviors and would be a little bit more more different, but they're not because a lot of um, you know um, capital cities in Africa obviously live on also on a very westernized way of life, and they don't they just consume, you know, consume, 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 and they don't really integrate. They don't really integrate this uh, this part of the problem and surprisingly actually it's in western countries now the population is getting really aware of the problem now there's strong popular pressure from associations NPOs etc to say go to governments to distribute to stop it you can't carry on like that so I think there's a law for instance to talk about France there's a law which prevents distributors like supermarkets big names to throw food you know they have to give it and they have to make it available to NPOs so they're not allowed just to throw it away or destroy it. This is a first step. It's already a good decision, but we have to go uh, we have to go further. Successfully cutting food loss and waste is a chance to turn around severe food insecurity felt by significant portions of the population. But food wastage is not only a phenomenon in European countries alone. Even African countries are guilty of this. Do you know the other day I, I, I was seeing something really uh, really nice actually. This lady in Cape Town, it was, um, she runs a restaurant. She was actually offering, every day she had a pot of soup 
left on a table outside the restaurant and it's free service for people who live in the street, homeless people, etc. And I thought the idea was great because, you know, we have to show solidarity. Basically, when you waste food or when we, we anything that we waste when it's still usable, I would say we lack solidarity. It's not just a question of being too materialistic. It's also a question sometimes of being inhuman because somebody else might need it, does need it. And we have to make sure that, you know, this type of behavior now uh, changes. Culinary guide and chef from the Reunion Islands, Joey Achma, talks about his contribution to the event and also weighs in on eliminating food wastage in his kitchen. Today we cook for the Disco Soup. It's um, an event from uh, Chef organized by uh, Institut Francaise and uh, French Alliance. And uh, I come uh, for two weeks in uh, South Africa, one week in uh, PE and one week in uh, Joboa and Soweto. And uh, we do a lot of events like uh, this Disco Soup. And today um, we cook a lot of uh, vegetables from uh, food wasting with a lot of people and they come, we have a DJ, music. We do um, some salad with uh, tomato, corns, grit puree with um, potatoes, sweet potato, uh, butternut and uh, some uh, sauteed of vegetables. We have a lot of mushroom and a big salad. And uh, all the things we we see, we take and try to make something nice. Yes, the, the people come and uh, just we see what we have. And uh, after I see them to peel, to wash, and uh, we create uh, the dish. In Rainon Island, we don't have a lot of poor people, but we have also. And um, I'm very happy to do events like this. And I'm careful in uh, my work also not wasting and uh, when I can I give it's better when I produce something I just uh, be sure to use uh, fresh products not take the plane the boat and uh, not a lot of um, you know plastic and uh, I try to do just the quantity not too much volunteers who were responsible for peeling and cooking the dishes also shared on their experience on the events of the day starting with a caregiver me petronella from a nearby daycare center in the area i'm working at little rose center i met this guy one time the one who invited me to come here because you are working hand in hand with them they're helping in our organization in Clip Town because we cater for kids. What I learned here today is that you cannot throw the food and say it's old because we wash them and we cook them and we eat them. It was nice for us today. So I learned that thing. So I'll do the same thing because I'm working with the kids, especially ladies are working in the kitchen. I'll be advising them what I saw here. But it's nice and you don't use so much spice and so forth. But it was nice. I came because I was invited. Now seeing people in and out, I stand up. I grabbed some pots. I fried the mushroom and it was nice with olive oil and salt. And we mix them and we cut the veggies. Then we mix them and we cook and we eat. Even in my house, I won't throw the things that we seeing them now. They're like that. No. Young girls from Europe who are on their gap years in South Africa, 
who attended the Disco Soup share on their learnings from the event and how they hope to change their attitudes on return to their respective homes. Hello, I'm Elise Vollenden and I'm from Belgium. I'm 18 years old and I'm here in South Africa for uh, three months. And yeah, I wanted to take a gap year before studying uh, university. So I decided to do three months of South Africa and I discovered a center by a friend who came last year. What really shocked me is that in South Africa, they don't waste that much food. Like I know that in Belgium, we waste a lot of food and in my family too, like my father, he will buy a lot, a lot and then it will get expired. So he will throw it away. And it really shocked me like in kindergarten, they really have to take all of it to make sure that nothing is wasted. So I know there are some ways too with the big, the big shops and everything, but in the center, I don't have the impression that that much food is wasted. So I think it's better in South Africa than in Europe. Most of the food we said it's expired. We can eat it. So it's really stupid to just throw it away. And so, yeah, it, it was a nice activity to do it all together and using food that was supposed to be thrown away. And even now we can all go back with food. So that's really nice. I really like the pumpkin, really. It was my favorite. So, yeah, and the mushrooms too. It was really good. Sunny Banani. <laughs> I'm Amaka from Germany, 18 years old, and I make a voluntary year in South Africa. And I'm staying here for two months now. In Germany, there's a lot of food waste because the people think we have money, we buy and buy, but they don't really think about if they need it and if they can eat it in the time it is good so there, there's much food waste in, uh, in Germany and here there's also but uh, I think especially when you see it at uh, the, the chicken feet you eat it here <laughs> yeah in Germany there's another another thinking in South Africa I think you really want to get everything of the of the animal so you really want to eat every part of the animal so don't waste any Thing. So I think this is something that is really... <laughs> I've not tried it now, but it's on my to-do list. I will stay here for one year, so I have a little bit of time to, <laughs> to do it. Actually, I learned now and I, uh, I put it into my, uh, into my thinking. So I'm just buying the things for one week. Maybe sometimes not for one week, just really what I uh, need for this day. So I don't waste so much. So maybe the fridge is not every time so full. It's, it looks empty, but I think it's better when it's empty and you use everything. Then it's full and you have to throw it away because it's not good anymore. Gerald concludes on how he hopes the project will change people's perspectives about food waste and what he envisions for the future. We have to make sure this is not just a one shot. So, you know, now Alliance Weto is going to have to start a regular program of events. In those events, I would also like to tackle the question of uh, sustainability. And um, we also have a project of uh, starting a pedagogical garden. So uh, we have a little space here. I would like to install grow boxes, have the kids from uh, neighboring schools to come and then grow vegetables with us and show them that, you know, it's also good when you put your hands in the soil and make your own food. And uh, it's something we're going to have to regularly tackle as a, as a question through uh, either practice or through uh, workshops or uh, talks. Stay curious. Stay informed. Stay on the science inside. Welcome back. This is still the science inside. So on tonight's show, we spoke to Chanel Witten, a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Health Sciences on the campus in Potterstrom. She initiated the idea of the breastfeeding room in 2016 towards addressing the university's serious lack of facilities for mothers needing to express their breast milk.
She also shared her findings on nutrition, especially in children and ways in which we can economically combat the crisis. We also heard about Disco Soup, an event which aimed to raise public awareness of the problem of food waste. And on Unscience, I cannot forget, we discovered how Mona Lisa's smile was really not genuine. Thank you all to our guests featured on tonight's show, namely Chantal Witten. Last but not least, our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lipere, Nundumi Solohuzo, and myself, Lindo Kuchetimakwe, and tech by Sipue Moloi. The Science Inside is produced by the Vitz Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. From myself and the team, have yourselves a very good night. The Science Inside Podcast.